Hey everybody, Zach here. Before we get started with the podcast, I just want to let you know about our sponsor, Anchor. We're new to podcasting here at Salty Saints, and Anchor has made it so easy for us to get started. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain a little bit about it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything that you need to make a podcast in one place. The best part about Anchor, though, is that it's absolutely free. So if you, like us, want to get your word out there, you want to try your hand at podcasting, make sure that you download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Salty Saints Podcast. I am your host, Zach, and I'm very pleased to have Philip Richardson, my friend, sitting here with me. Uh, We are going to be talking about the spirit-transformed life today, and I'm just going to let him rant into this microphone for a little bit. How you doing, Philip? I'm fine, thank you. How are you, Zach? I'm doing well. Um, To get started, do you want to kind of let us know a little bit about yourself? Certainly, yeah. So you've already heard my name is Philip Richardson. I'm a member of the church here. Um, I sometimes uh, joke when I introduce myself that you can probably tell uh, from my accent that I'm not from Indiana. Uh, In fact, I moved here from Kentucky, which is true because we've lived in the United States for 10 years, firstly in Kentucky, now in Indiana. But uh, as you may have guessed, I'm from England, not Australia, as sometimes people like to think. Uh, So I grew up in, uh, in England um, uh, married to my wife Fiona and uh, after seminary training in the UK we moved as uh, missionaries to Tanzania in East Africa. We were there for eight years um, working with the church. I, my wife was um, doing youth and children's ministry as a kind of resource consultant um, advisor kind of person and uh, I was teaching at a Bible college training pastors for ministry and, and church planters evangelists people like that. Um, while we were there, we adopted our two daughters, Jasmine, who unbelievably is nearly 23, um, who's now living in England, and Bethany, who is uh, 17 in her last year at high school here in Indiana. Um, we came to uh, the U.S. for the first time in 2010 and uh, to st- for me to study at a place called Asbury Theological Seminary in a small town in Kentucky. Um, it's in a very small place, but it's actually one of the largest seminaries now in the United States. And uh, I was doing a PhD in biblical studies, focusing on New Testament. I finished that in 2016, and we moved to Greenwood, where the church is here, to be part of One Mission Society, OMS, whose global headquarters are here. And uh, I'm involved with uh, theological education and leadership training as a kind of, uh, I'm the coordinator of the department and as a kind of consultant and so I, I uh, do administration and, and sort of advising people, but quite a bit of teaching. And uh, pre-COVID, I was traveling from time to time uh, to teach intensive classes at seminaries. Um, so I've been to places like Haiti and Estonia and Ukraine and Nigeria and managed to make it to Mexico before the, uh, the lockdown earlier this year. Bit of a halt on all of that, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, so I know today 
uh, you know, I'd, I'd asked you what you might want to talk about, and, and mm-hmm. you gave me a few options. And um, I thought that the spirit transform life, that was one of your options. I thought that that would really resonate, yeah. especially today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, for all time, of course. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the world's kind of crazy right now, so I think we need that. Yeah. Um, what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. Well, of course, there are so many things we could say, and there are so many passages of the New Testament that we could go to. Uh, and our time is limited, so I'm going to focus on one particular aspect of, uh, you could say, the spirit-transformed life. We could say all sorts of other things, looking at the book of Acts, for instance. We could say different things again, looking at the Gospel of John, just as an example. But I'm going to focus on uh, Paul, who has a lot to say. The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about the spirit. And he has a lot to say, particularly in Romans. Uh, Romans 8 has more references to the spirit than any other chapter in Paul's letters. Um, But I'm going to start with an unusual uh, place um, before I get to that, uh, with a section before that in Romans, uh, which doesn't even mention the Spirit. But I have a reason for doing that. So um, as you think about uh, the passage I'm going to read, I would say, what do you expect? Or let's think together. You know, what do you expect your Christian life to look like day by day? Um, What kind of expectation do you have of what sort of level you can live at, what, what that could mean in your own experience. So here's a passage from Romans 7 that, uh, that many Christians understand to be describing their own experience of the Christian life, and it's taken from Romans 7, verse 14. I'm jumping in halfway through a chapter, but uh, we'll come back to some of the context later. So Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, or literally fleshly, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do, um, do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul has been saying a lot about the law in, in his letter to the Romans. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not, uh, if I do what I do not want, this passage is very difficult to read, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So that's verses 14 to, 7, uh, to uh, 20. So I don't know, Zach, if this is a passage you're particularly familiar with or have thought a lot about. Um, I don't know, what, what do you think Paul is describing, or who is he describing? This one's been tough for me. Um, yeah, I feel, I've thought about this verse a lot over the years. Um, I, I am a fairly, I'm not a new, I'm not a young Christian, but I mm-hmm. think I was a very immature believer for a very long time. Right. And it's not been until these last few years that I've really started trying, you know, yeah. um, and this one has messed me up. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of hopeful in a way um, in that I can look to Paul and say, well, it feels like he's struggling with being who God wants him to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the hard part is, well, if if me trying doesn't matter, then what do I do? Right. Right? Yeah. It is a tough passage, and, and it's a very controversial one, and there's been a lot of opinions over on it over church history it's been something that's been debated from very early on in the church fathers 
Um, so a lot of Christians will say, uh, at least ones I've met will say, well, this describes the tensions in my own Christian life. You know, this kind of almost like a battle between the flesh and the spirit within. Um, I know I've been forgiven of my sin. I know I'll go to heaven when I die. But in between, there's this daily struggle in my life. I've still got a sinful nature. I know what God wants me to do. I can't seem to find the power to do it. I kind of go back and forth trying to do what God wants, but failing, messing up, sinning. And the Christian life involves this kind of ongoing struggle with sin. That's what it's all about. And certainly um, a lot of the, re- the 16th century reformers, people like Calvin and Luther, uh, understood the passage this way. After all, we might say Paul is talking in the first person. He keeps saying I. There's all these I, 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 I throughout the passage. It's in the present tense, which the passage before uh, it was not. So maybe it's speaking of the uh, present Christian experience. Case closed, you might say. But I think if we read through Romans carefully from the beginning, I think uh, it doesn't actually make sense to see it that way. And I'm just going to give you a very, very brief, um, some very brief comments on the background, uh, skirting over a lot of the previous chapters just for the sake of time. But right at the start of uh, the letter to the Romans, Paul puts out um, the thesis, you might say, the main theme of the letter he spells out in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, where he says it's the gospel... And then he defines the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, or we might say Gentile, so the non-Jew. It seems like from the evidence of the letter, we have a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in the congregation, perhaps a majority of Gentiles. Uh, It seems like perhaps the Jews were in the, um, it could have been the dominant force, but uh, they were kicked out of Rome. The Jews and Christians actually were expelled under an edict um, from the emperor. And so it seems like the Gentile uh, section of the congregation became the majority. Then the Jews came back in again. They were allowed a few years later to return to Rome. And so that might have led to tensions, as now the Gentiles are the sort of the main church leaders and uh, might have been tempted to look down on the Jews, perhaps. So there's a lot of talk about where do the Jews and Gentiles fit in God's plan of salvation and God's purposes for the church. So in the first four chapters of Romans, Paul talks about the need that both Jews and Gentiles have the need of the gospel. It's not like the Jews are the people of God, so therefore they didn't need it. You know, they had the law, they had the covenant, so you don't need it. Paul's saying, no, um, one famous verse that would sum this up in Romans 3.23 is when Paul says, for all have sinned, you know, not just Gentiles, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He talks quite a bit about the role of the law, um, which was given to God, guide God's people. And he's saying the law is powerless to save people. It was God's um, provision. It was, God, it was the guide for the people. It was right for the time. But ultimately, it was powerless to save people. Um, it was powerless to enable people to live the way they were supposed to live. Instead, we've now been made right with God through Christ's death for sinful people. That's sort of the message through uh, chapter 3 and 4. But then Paul goes on to introduce the work of the Holy Spirit, which is of interest as we're, that's what we're talking about today. So in Romans 5, verse 5, just as an example, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And in the rest of chapter 5, he looks at, um, he compares Adam and Christ and these sort of two representative uh, figures for humanity, those who live under the banner or the headship, if you like, of Christ, and then the old Adam, the old humanity that lives under the banner or the, the head of Adam. And uh, he's emphasizing that though the sin was great and sin brought death into the world, 
Um, so Adam's transgression brought the power of sin into the world and death, and they rule almost like kings is the imagery we get in chapter 5. Um, but it doesn't matter how powerful sin is as a force or how much we have sinned because God's grace is uh, infinitely greater than that. But then that raises a question for his audience. And from time to time in Romans, Paul um, asks these kind of hypothetical or almost rhetorical questions. So it's almost like he's anticipating what someone in the audience might say. You know, they, they might put their hand up and say, well, hang on a minute. Okay, you said this, but what about this? So because the, the law was what was supposed to guide us and shepherd us and be a sort of a boundary to prevent us from sinning, keeping us, steering us away from sin. Uh, and because it seems like no matter how much sin there was, grace would be even greater to triumph over sin, and we could be put right with God without being good people. The question then says, well, goes then, well, shall we keep on sinning so that grace might increase? You know, it doesn't matter how much we sin because grace will be even bigger. So Paul answers his own question, which, uh, if I can put it in the New Hope, New Hope translation, says, no way, Jose, or something like that. Says no way, by no means. But the reason he gives is crucial. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It would be a contradiction to say I've been saved from sin, but that doesn't really relate to my present day experience. I still just sin all the time. That's just how things are. So Paul is assuming that uh, constantly battling with sin is not, shouldn't be the default mode. It shouldn't be the normal Christian life. And so to, to find his way into this, in Romans 6... Paul uses a very striking image, and we might call it full immersion baptism. So we do this sometimes at New Hope Church. We have a, um, a very large baptismal pool, and a person is placed completely under the water. They're plunged beneath the waters by the pastor, and then they're brought up out of the water. Now, one way we think of this sometimes uh, is, is it's a picture of being washed, of being cleansed from sin, which of course it is. But Paul uses this image in an even more striking way. He uses it as an image of death. Now, Paul often uses these kind of jolting images, just as maybe Jesus did something similar in the parables, to kind of get our attention, to shock us, to, to make us see uh, things, see uh, life from a different perspective, a different angle. So he says, just as Jesus died on the cross and was buried in the grave, the same thing happened to us uh, by being joined to Christ. It's as if we, with him, were also buried in the grave. That is our old lives of sin. So Paul then says in Romans 6, verses 3 to 4, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. So what, what was the purpose of that? What's that going to produce? So Paul goes on to explain here, and he says, In order that, so that's the purpose, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, and then what he says is quite interesting. He doesn't say, so then we might be raised spiritually or we might go to heaven when we die. He says, so that we too might walk, walk in newness of life. And it's interesting that he uses that verb to walk. If you think of the Old Testament and particularly the Psalms, the, the psalmists are often talking, using this phrase to walk as a kind of a metaphor, an image for how we live. So our ethics, um, the, our manner of life, how we conduct ourselves. So we hear of phrases like walking in the way of the Lord. That's used quite a bit in the Old Testament. It's living our lives God's way, the way of the Lord. So Paul's expectation is that this death to, um, to self and to sin is actually so that we can live a different way, can live a changed life, not one of constant frustration and defeat, 
at the hands of sin. Now, back to Romans 5 again, we have this picture almost of two kings, uh, two different, not, the book, not the book of the Bible, but two different kings. And uh, you could say that sin used to be on the throne, in the, in, to use the language of Romans 5. But now God, he's saying, should be on the throne of your life. He also uses in, in uh, chapter 6, he uses the imagery of slavery. Now, of course, in the ancient world, slavery, the whole economy, sadly, was built on slavery. It was just a very, very common thing. Paul even writes to slaves, addresses slaves in his letters, Christian slaves. So he says that the goal of this death and rising is that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. And he says several times in this passage that you used to be slaves uh, to sin, but you've been set free from it, set free from sin in, in uh, chapter 6, verse 7. Now, of course, in our culture, thinking about this and, and the, probably the way we, we have a strong emphasis on freedom, our freedoms, our rights, you know, our liberties, we talk about that a lot in our political discussions, we might look at that and say, well, great, we're, we're no longer slaves, we're free. Well, yes and no, in that Paul says, yes, you are free from sin, but you're actually still supposed to be a slave, which is quite a striking image again, quite a surprising thing to say. What does he mean by that? Why does he say that? Well, he says you're now a different kind of slave. So, for example, in Romans 6, verse 18, it literally says, you have become enslaved to righteousness. That's kind of a striking and surprising thing to say. We don't tend to think of it that way. You've become enslaved to righteousness. Or chapter 6, verse 22, you've become enslaved to God. So if I can take all those things I've just said, and I know it's quite a bit to take in, and go back to Romans 7 in the light of that. So Paul, when he talks about this I, I keep on doing the evil things I don't want to do, um, I don't do the good things I want to do. Well, at the start of this section, Paul says in uh, Romans 7 verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin, which is... There's kind of no verb there, but it's really saying sold as a slave to, I mean, there's no sort of supporting verb, but sold as a slave to sin. So you've got to ask yourself, how can this possibly be the life of the Christian described in Romans 6, who precisely is no longer a slave to sin? And yet in Romans 7, verse 14, the speaker says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. The second thing to ask ourselves is, is this really... um, Sometimes people characterize Romans 7 it's, it's, a, it's a struggle between the flesh and the sin. Uh, sorry, the flesh and the spirit, I'm sorry. Uh, it's a life of tension. It's, uh, sometimes sin gets the upper hand. Sometimes the eye gets the upper hand. But actually, if you read the passage through carefully, the passage actually defects, uh, depicts a life of constant defeat. There's no point, actually, where the eye says, well, sometimes I actually conquer sin <laughs> you know sometimes sin gets the better of me sometimes i get the better of sin it's it's constant defeat all the way through the passive person says they can never do evil uh, never do good i'm sorry they can never do good and always do evil so is that really the uh, the picture of the christian life as it should be lived the, the what god has prepared for us <laughs> um as christians as a result of setting us free from sin here's another way of thinking about it In Philippians 3, verse 6, um, Paul talks about his life as a Pharisee before he became a follower of Jesus. This is one of the uh, very clear places where he talks about his former life. And he describes himself previously, 
prior to becoming a Christian, he says, as to righteousness, talking of himself, under the law, blameless. Blameless. He's not um, struggling, having been frustrated, uh, feeling defeated. So is Paul really saying that his present spiritual experience as a Christian is somehow inferior to that of his pre-Christian life? You know, we have to ask ourselves that. Another way of thinking about it is, um, is that really the best we can hope for in the normal Christian life? We might say, a lot of people will say, oh, that's what my experience feels like. Okay, but is that really what God intends for us? Would God have set us free from sin in one sense when we talk about, you know, my sins are forgiven, they were buried with Christ at the cross and so on. Uh, And yet, I'm enslaved by sin in my daily experience uh, subsequent to that. Is that really the way that he would uh, want us to to, uh, live? So here's another way of thinking about some of these things. So I would say when Paul says, um, I, 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 in the present tense, it doesn't mean about he's talking about himself personally, and it doesn't mean he's talking about his present experience. And let me explain why I think that. Firstly, there's the reasons I've just given you. It doesn't seem to be logically consistent. It seems like an incredibly low expectation of what Christian life should be. But also we have to think whenever we're reading any book, any passage, any section of the Bible about genre, about the type of writing that we're reading. You know, so we sometimes, when we read a poem, we don't expect to take it, we might say, literally in the same way that we might take a scientific uh, textbook. Uh, if we're reading a novel, we won't get sort of angry with the author for making things up because that's you know, the whole point. Whereas if we read a newspaper article and they're making things up, you know, we, uh, a person can get fired, taken to court, etc. So Paul seems to be using a popular rhetorical device of the day that we see. We have plenty of other ancient writings of Paul's day written by um, quite a lot of them by philosophical authors who are writing, um, thinking about life and wisdom and these kinds of things. How do we live our lives? Just like Paul is doing in the Bible. And they use what we might call speech in character, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, speaking as if you're somebody else. And, of course, we, look, we do that when we read a novel. We, it might be written in the first person. Um, some of the Victorian novels, you know, they're written in the first person, but clearly we're not thinking that um, Emily Bronte or Charles Dickens or whoever is the person who is talking to us. And it, um, so it's speaking kind of in character. Then why the present tense? Well, we don't know for certain, but some, it may be just style, trying to make something vivid. And we do that in everyday conversation uh, when people will say things like uh, they're telling a story about something that happened and they say, so I'm in the store and this man turns to me and I say to him, but they're actually talking about the past. They're not talking about the present. I was once discussing this passage with some friends of mine um, who are Christians and they said, well, how can the I be a non-Christian? You know, think about it. How can it be a non-Christian? My non-Christian friends, they're not struggling to obey the law, powerless to do so. They're not even interested in the law. They're not trying to do uh, follow God's will. But the other thing we have to do when we're reading um, the Bible, which is, um, applies to us but was originally written to other people, is we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the first audience and we have to think about the, the, uh, the original discussion and what Paul's doing and who he's speaking to. So as 21st century Gentile Christians, which is what we are, thinking about our non-Christian Gentile friends, clearly they're not thinking about the law. But Paul's whole discussion in Romans is framed around the history of God's people and his dealings with them, and particularly between the relationships between Jews and Gentiles and how that has changed in the church. So we could say that the I, who is wanting to keep the law and struggling and seems to be defeated and powerless to do so, to do so 
is more like the people of Israel. Think of them in the wilderness wanderings in the Exodus, or think of the ways the prophets rebuke them, like Amos or Isaiah, you know, sort of um, saying, you know, you should be doing this, but you're not doing it. Uh, at one point in Romans 7, verse 22, it says, I delight in God's law. Well, you get that quite a bit in the Psalms. They say, we delight in the law of the Lord. They want to obey it, but somehow in their own flesh, to use Paul's language, they can't. And so you could say that Paul, as a Christian, as a Jewish Christian, is looking in the rearview mirror, so to speak, at Jewish existence, and that in retrospect, looking back, although he may not have felt about that, his, uh, that way as a Pharisee, he sees now that that was the life of Israel. You know, try, they keep failing, and we get this um, over and over again in places like Exodus and Deuteronomy, you know, the people constantly rebelling, failing, uh, get this in Judges. God has to keep sending Judges because every time he delivers them, they fall again, they get themselves into a mess, they have to, someone else has to come and pick up the pieces and save them. We also need to think about the immediate context. So in the section just before the one I read, so this is Romans 7, verse 1 to 6, is the section before that, Paul has been uh, painting a little picture about the law, and he's been comparing uh, the law and the relationship to the people to like a, uh, a husband and wife, and one of them dies, and they leave something in their will, and the person who's died, well, we're no longer married to them anymore. That's, you know, you were, but uh, they're not here anymore. And so he says, in the past, we were living in the flesh, he says, in verses 5 to 6. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, this is past tense. This is speaking about the past. But in verse 6, he says, but now... We get that quite a bit in Paul's letters, the but now, something has changed. We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, he said all that before he gets into that passage about the eye and the struggle and the tension. So law and flesh and sinful passions here are being associated with the past and serving in the new way of the spirit, to use Paul's language, is in the present. Before we finally get to Romans 8, which is the actual thing I want to talk about and about the Spirit-transformed life, there's certain passages in the Old Testament which, of course, the Old Testament's a very, very big book, but when we look at uh, the New Testament, we find that there are particular books or particular passages that the early Christians came back to again and again. Passages, some of which didn't maybe seem significant in that way before Christ, but later on reflection they did, and we see that in Acts, sometimes quoting what appear to be fairly obscure passages, giving them new applications. But this one is one that I think has a much clearer application even in the Old Testament. And this is from Ezekiel uh, 36. I'm going to quote a couple of very well-known verses in a moment, but I'll just give you a little bit of a backdrop, because we sometimes just look at those two verses and nothing else. So this is, uh, God is delivering a message to Ezekiel to, uh, to speak to his people Israel. And in the passage, they've, they've clearly repeatedly fallen short of God's ways. They're constantly messing up, like the kind of things we see in Romans 7. And um, Ezekiel, or God, we could say, speaking to Ezekiel, uses the language quite a bit of uncleanness or impurity. He uses different words that are kind of from that range of meaning to say that they defiled the land, they polluted the land that God gave them, the, the promised land, the holy land. And then he uses another word for impurity, uh, another verb to say that they actually profaned or polluted, we might say in modern English, God's holy name. And in the Bible, quite often name is not just 
something, you know, my name is Philip, which technically means lover of horses. Does that mean I'm a lover of horses? Well, not so much in my case, but <laughs> I don't mind them. But, uh, but in the Bible, the a name reflects your character, right. reflects who you really are, or your reputation. Think of it as like... Uh, um, a libel action because this person def- you know, defamed my reputation in a newspaper with that story. They made this accusation. Now my name is tarnished. That's, that's, uh, I, I think we always get the, uh, the commandment wrong, not to take the Lord's name in vain. We always equate it to saying OMG or you know, mm-hmm. d- using his name out, out of a reverent uh, situation. But I, I think it's to bear his name falsely, to, to represent him poorly. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that can be, right. That can be one of those uh, meanings. Yeah, definitely. So Paul, uh, not Paul, um, God says he will make himself, uh, he himself will make his name holy before the nations. He'll do a new work in his people. And so some famous verses from Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and uh, sorry, yes, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. So you've got this contrast between, we, we would say a hard heart is, is one of the images we use, don't we, in, often in conversation. It's a heart of stone, a um, heart that is hard, that is, that is uh, you know, you can't get through a stone. Heart of flesh is more like something that's malleable, that's soft, that's open. And I'll put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there you've got the combination of the spirits inside. In the Old Testament, the emphasis was on the spirit came at particular times on particular people for particular assignments. So we have kings that get anointed by the spirit so they can do certain things, lead the people out to battle, say. Or the spirit come on particular prophets so they can give a particular message. Um, but not this sense that the Spirit is a constant presence on or even in them all the time, let alone the ordinary person all the time. But he says there's going to be a day where the Spirit will be put within you. But notice there's this relationship with the law, with uh, obeying God's ways. and And the Spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God promises to purify his people, make them clean, give them a new start. Now, sometimes we talk about a clean slate, a, a new start, when, as when we become Christians. You know, I'm forgiven, um, I've got a new start, God doesn't look at my past sin. But we kind of limit it, which is all true, but we limit it to that. Um, but we still have this picture of the Christian life that's like Romans 7. I can't keep God's commandments, I keep failing, I'm living a life of frustration. But God promises to put his spirit within his people to enable them, he says in Ezekiel, to walk in his ways, obey his laws, be transformed in their hearts and in their actions. And this is a bit like Jeremiah's great promise of a new covenant that we get referred to a number of times. Uh, It's in Hebrews, in other other places, the letter to the Hebrews, um, from Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. And part of that is he says that in this covenant, I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. So there's something internal done to change us so that we keep uh, God's ways. So let's have a look at uh, Romans 8. And again, I'm I'm actually only going to look at sort of the first uh, section. It's quite a long chapter. I won't look at all the rest of it. This is right literally at the center of Romans. Now, Paul didn't have uh, verse letters, uh, verse numbers, and, and chapter numbers. Sorry to disappoint any of you who are listening, but 
Those were added much later, but it is right at the centre of uh, Paul's letter. And it's also, as I said at the beginning, the great chapter on the Spirit. Spirit is mentioned more times here than anywhere else in any of Paul's letters, and we have 13 letters by Paul. So Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, I'll just read those verses to you. He says, therefore, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we've got this strong contrast here between spirit and life on the one hand and law and death on the other hand. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, and this is the interesting part, this is the purpose again, the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us. And who are we? Those who walk not according to the flesh. So we've got this walking again, same verb, living, uh, the manner of life you, you hold to, walking not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So notice there's a past completed action, just like there is in Romans 6. Just as Romans 6 said we're no longer uh, slaves of sin, uh, Romans 8 says we've been set free from sin or we've been literally righteous from sin. And there's a goal or a purpose so that Paul, uh, the purpose of God's righteous law might be fulfilled in us. Now the spirit and the flesh, Paul has a lot to say here about the, it goes back between these two things, the spirit and the flesh. Um, I don't know, Zach, what do you think of when you think of the flesh in Paul talking about these kind of things? Is that something you've yeah, given some thought to? Yeah, I would, I've always looked at that as the sinful nature of man, that the flesh is the part of us that is tied to the law, the, the, mm-hmm. well, the earthly yeah. part of us, the, yeah. the physical, that it's still steeped in that longing for sin. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, this, this word, there's a particular Greek word behind this translation that's used a lot in the New Testament— um, especially in Paul. Now, when we're ever looking, whenever we're looking at words, just in any language, the great sort of adage, the great rule, is that words mean what they mean in context. Right. So sometimes people will say, oh, the dictionary says there are these three things that this word can mean. Therefore, it means all of those three things whenever it is used. Well, language doesn't work like that. Instead, um, the same word can be used in different ways. And we really get it. It's not as if the dictionary fell from heaven. The dictionary was someone's observation of how they see word being, words being used, language being used in practice. So sometimes thinking outside Paul for a moment, flesh can just be used to mean body, the human being. When we read in John, the word became flesh, talking about Jesus. We're not saying anything about him being sinful. We're just meaning that Jesus, God in Jesus, became a human being. Uh, and sometimes Paul uses it in that way as well. It can just be used about our body with no particular sort of overtones of anything bad. But a lot of the time, Paul uses the word flesh negatively. The NIV translation, you may, a uh, new international version, um, a lot of people have noticed uses this word, sin, this phrase, sinful nature, throughout, instead of the word flesh, because the English word flesh is not one we would be uh, common, we would commonly use in those kinds of contexts. There's something in that, although the danger is perhaps that it, it makes it look as, as if we have, um, it's only talking about our nature inside of ourselves and almost like we're split personalities. We've got our spirit nature and our sinful nature. But often Paul uses flesh to talk, you could say, of the kind of sphere of life or the environment that we can walk in. 
um, which has not been transformed by God, which is opposed to God, which is self-centered, which is the opposite of the sphere or agency of the spirit. But it may not be solely to do with something that's inside of me. It's almost like there are these two spheres in which I could walk. The spirit, it's not as if the Holy Spirit is um, equal with my inner nature. The spirit dwells in me, but is not my nature. And Paul is saying that in verses 5 to 8 here, there are two types of people. And being and living as those types of people produces certain results. In other places, like Galatians, he might use words like fruit. So he says we are the people who are now in the sphere of the spirit, not the sphere of the flesh. However, it's possible to set our compass, you could say, by the flesh rather than the spirit, even though we're already in the spirit. It's possible to live contrary to our own new nature if, we don't, if we're not careful. Because, uh, so Paul says in verses 5 to 8, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit um, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind, or we might say mindset, would be another way of thinking about it. The mindset of the flesh is death, but the mind or mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. For the mindset, the way of thinking of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul almost distinguishes between spirit people, we might say, and flesh people, people who are walking in the sphere or the environment of the spirit or of the flesh. So do we automatically walk, live out our lives in the spirit now that we are Christians? Actually, maybe I should ask you that question. Is that something that's just automatic? You're in the spirit, so you live in the spirit. It's just kind of automatic, uh, unconscious. You do it without thinking about it. Absolutely not. (laughs) You surprised me. Absolutely not, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's a that's a constant uh, constant thing. Yeah, I I find myself thinking about that daily, actually. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. I think the more you mature as a Christian, it that's at the forefront of your head a little bit more. Right. Absolutely. It's a strange thing, isn't it? In some ways, the more you are seeking to live without sin, the more conscious of sin you become. Perhaps before you were a Christian, you could be. Right, immersed in sin, not even right. be thinking about it too much. Well, it, it can almost be depressing too, because yeah. <laughs> the more the more effort you put into not living in sin, mm-hmm. the more you realize how much you do sin, mm-hmm. and then you feel like you're doing nothing. You right. feel like you're getting nothing then, which kind of yeah. feels like what Paul's saying earlier. Yeah, yeah, and that's why a lot of people think that way. There's a passage in Galatians five that people often think uh, that way as well. Well, this must be talking about me. Well, as you say, yeah, Paul clearly doesn't think it's automatic. Otherwise, he wouldn't uh, write to them and, and tell them to do things, you know, to tell them they've got to do things. If it just sort of happened by itself, you know, if it was literally automatic, as we say, autonomous, um, he wouldn't need to tell them. So he contrasts these two different types of people. And he talks about, it's almost about have, like having a frame of mind is how we say it today, or having a disposition or habitual way of thinking after the flesh or after the spirit. So... Paul is saying there's these two different ways. Is it the way um, dominated by worldly, purely human concerns, kind of self-focused, only on our bodily way of life? That is, um, So Paul doesn't have a big problem with human bodies. Sometimes when we read the word flesh, we think, oh, Paul is... uh, Today we take the word phobia and we'd add it to, uh, perhaps we could say somophobic. That would be a nice uh, soma being the body in Greek. (laughs) We like to use these words. um, You can almost fall into a Gnostic way of thinking. Yeah. 
yeah, a Gnostic way being uh, that we there's a sort of a separation between the the spirit and the body. Right. And in fact, in in Paul's day, a lot of Greco-Roman. Uh, so Gre- we use the word Greco-Roman to talk about the Roman Empire, but strongly influenced still by Greek culture, Greek language. You know, the New Testament's written in Greek. Uh, a Greco-Roman way of thinking most of the time was to say. When, at least when I die, I can leave my body behind and I can sort of float up into the stars or, or into the afterlife or whatever it is. Um, very unusual for Christians to talk about the transformation of the body, the resurrection body. Uh, the matter matters, as people, as the cliche goes, uh, whereas matter was just seen as filthy and dirty and want to get rid of it. But in fact, Plato and others talk about the body being like a prison, prison cage. And if I can only float away or like a dove, kind of fly away like, like the dove from Noah's Ark, I can get free. Um, but Paul is, um, so Paul is not implying that, but Paul is warning of the kind of life that only is focused on my sort of day-to-day bodily existence, uh, my concerns, my needs, my desires. Um, uh, whereas instead he's saying that our uh, way of the spirit should be a godly, righteous, spirit-led focus on eternal things. But, of course, that drives how we actually live in the world today. And he says our identity has changed. If you're a Christian, you certainly do have the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 9. You, however, he says to his audience, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Uh, This is a topic for another day, maybe, but it's interesting how much the emphasis Paul puts on Christian experience, that somehow being able to tell that the Spirit is leading you, that the Spirit is in you, that the Spirit began your Christian life, not just believing in a set of maxims, like I believe in the Apostles' Creed, therefore I'm a Christian. Uh, Obviously that's sort of part of it, belief is very much part of it. But he says the Spirit does dwell in you if you're a Christian. You can be assured of that. But, he says, we then have an obligation. Verses 12 and 13. And he uses the, um, the imagery of uh, being in debt, you know, you've taken a loan out, uh, you've got this debt to pay. So he says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and this is, again, this idea of plunging something into baptism, into death, like we got in Romans 6, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, and we might say daughters of God. So the Spirit really does empower us, Paul is saying, to live differently, not to battle constantly with sin, but to live God's way. Notice this imagery of us dying. You, uh, you'll be the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And this is very much what Paul said in Romans 6. These are some verses that I didn't touch on when we, uh, I talked about this earlier. In Romans 6 he says, So you must also consider yourselves or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. This is again like I talked about earlier, sin being the king or reigning on the throne. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then again in uh, chapter 6, verse 19. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now 
present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification or leading to holiness. So how are we going to do this, Zach? How, how are we going to live this different life, do you think? Uh, do, do, do you want me to give like the my actual thoughts on this? Um, I, submitting to Jesus, submitting to Christ, mm-hmm. um, giving yourself up. Yeah. The, the I have to become less and less. He has to become more and more. Right. Um, that would be my answer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Paul talks about dying, being dying to the old way of life. You remember somewhere else in Galatians, he talks about being crucified with Christ. That's right. a similar kind of image, isn't it? Dying to what I am um, and letting Christ live in me, really letting him take possession of me. And in our, particularly in our Western individualistic culture, I think this is less of a problem sometimes for other more group-orientated cultures where you're very much deferring to the wider group in decision-making or deferring or a more hierarchical society where it's very status-orientated. This, this like person the Jews, is the, for instance. Yeah. Um, or you get in, in tribes in Africa, this person's the chief, so we obey him. There's no question. I don't think, well, what about me? You know, what, do I, what, what about my opinions? They're not, not thinking like that. Um, as we surrender ourselves to God day by day, and this has to be, it's not just a, so sometimes we can talk about um, salvation. This is getting into a different topic slightly, but we say, I've heard people use the word salvation, meaning the moment I became a Christian. Salvation, um, which is true. But Paul talks about also, I was saved, I am being saved. He uses that language, which Mm -hmm. is often surprising to us. Um, He does use the language of we will be saved when writing to Christians. Right, even the the fulfillment of our salvation. So there's an ongoing process. And you could say similarly, when we became Christians, we chose to give our lives to Christ. Um, But we need to surrender ourselves to God day by day. We need to choose moment by moment. It's going to be a daily thing. It's going to be a moment by moment thing to put all of our lives into his hands, to obey him in all things, not to live with the mindset of the flesh and the slaves of sin, but choosing to die to self, sin, and the flesh. And as we do that, he does, he can enable us to walk in his ways. Sometimes we, we have this expectation, or we have very low expectations of what the Christian life can be. We could say, well, this is all I've experienced, or this is what it feels like to me. Romans 7 feels like my life, so therefore, this is a kind of a funny way of interpreting the Bible, really. It feels like me, so it must be me, so that can be all there is. must be all there is. Instead of believing, well, actually, God's power is unlimited. Right. God is not hindered. Yes, I'm a sinful, frail, weak, ignorant human being, um, but that doesn't matter. God takes the most ridiculous people... He takes someone like Jacob in the Old Testament, who's a liar, he's a deceiver, you know, he's just the worst person you could think of. Totally self-centered, but he uses him in great ways. Or he takes Paul, who had tremendous gifts, but is absolutely opposed to the church, to the point he's having people dragged, pastors dragged out of their homes, put in prison, killing them, approving of their deaths. Um, But he turns his life around. He doesn't say, well, you know, I can't work with Paul. You know, who could possibly convert Paul? So there's nothing that is... You know, as we know, the, the phrase from the Old Testament is anything too hard for the Lord. Nothing, nothing's impossible with God. So it's not that, um, if I can use this phrase, it's not that it's not possible to sin as Christians, but that it's possible to not sin or not to sin. I'm sorry. It's possible not to sin if, we, if we're allowing the Spirit to lead us, to rule over our hearts, words, and actions. It's not pr- primarily about what I do. You know, I'm having to kind of work a bit harder, try a bit more. 
it's cooperating with the empowering uh, grace of the Spirit. And so we could say that as we allow, um, as we surrender more of ourselves to God, and sometimes we, we need to pray and ask ourselves, there may be areas of our life that we haven't let go of, things that we're saying, I want to do this, I've got this plan for my life. It might be a long-term thing, or it might even just be a day-to-day thing. I'm the kind of person who needs to do this. I'm the kind of person who needs to be right. control, in control of this thing. And some of us, of course, have just naturally more issues with that than others because of our, our personality. But um, as we give all of my, ourselves t- to him, he is able to give all of himself to us. Right. As I allow myself to be empty, not in the Buddhist sense, but emptied for God's spirit to fill, uh, he is able to fill me more. And I'm able to die to self-interest. You think in, in Acts, um, Peter and the other apostles are filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But in Acts 4, um, Peter and John have been um, faced opposition from the religious leaders. They've been let go, set free temporarily with a warning and so on. They go back to the other apostles. They pray. Uh, they, they tell them what's happened. Paul, uh, Peter prays on behalf of everyone. And then it says the room where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You think, but hang on, this is Acts 4. Surely Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Well, he was, but it's possible, you know, this is not a, just a one-off thing. We need to continue surrendering and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is something that's not humanly possible, we might say. So Romans 7, from that point of view, is, is our thinking about this is correct. This is not possible. I can't do this. Well, no, we can't. But remember the verse I read out to you earlier from Romans 5 that said, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So that as Jesus gave us what seemingly impossible commands in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, like love your enemies. How can you love your enemy? Pray for those who persecute you. No, it's not humanly possible, but God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. As we surrender and yield to him, he can enable us uh, to increasingly walk in this life of living this way. Saying that, it kind of reminds me of when the Bible says that God, God placed a down payment on us mm-hmm. um, th- through the Holy Spirit. Right. The thing about a down payment is, is there's more to be paid. Yep. And so it's like he's giving more and more and more of mm-hmm. himself over time. But at, you know, at that moment of salvation, at that moment of accepting God, yeah. Sure, you've got you've got the Spirit. Yeah. But you're going to have more. Yeah. 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 He talks about the first fruits as well. So, um, you know, the first fruits of the harvest was the best, and it was the first, obviously, that they gathered in. But it wasn't the whole harvest. Right. There's more to come. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you had any questions for me or uh, anything else you'd like me to... I think it's great, man. Um, <laughs> something something else I kind of wanted to touch on, um, talking about, you know, for someone who's who's maybe stuck in a cycle of, of yeah. trying, like yeah. talk, talking about, I feel yeah. like I'm Paul. Yeah. Um, you know, for that person, maybe they are praying. Maybe they sure. are praying for change, and it's not coming. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're also told we have to have faith mm-hmm. that God will give us what we ask yes. for. You know, and, and I think sometimes I think sometimes we ask for things, but in the back of our head we're going, there's no way this no. is really going to happen. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know I go through that at times. <laughs> Yeah. And and we have to let go of that. We yeah. have to have faith that he's going to deliver on his promises to us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of us have had that experience of getting stuck in cycles. I know I have of 
feeling a failure, you know, of getting things wrong, or, or just feeling like, as you say, you're in this kind of cycle, and this all sounds well and good. I think we need to look at the... Um, sometimes we can be stuck inside our own head. It can be difficult to get out of that, that rut. And it's looking at passages like this and praying them. You can, I mean, you can pray scripture. You can pray through these things and saying, okay, this is what it says. This is what God says. This is very hopeful. This is very encouraging. I know I'm not experiencing it right now, but I can pray through it. I can ask God, am I holding something? You know, is there something in me that's holding it back somehow, that's holding his work back in me? Uh, am I, and it's about a relationship. It's not just about a, a state. Sometimes we use these, these words like salvation and I was once here and now I'm there, and it all sounds very me- mechanistic and, and, pro- and um, uh, abstract. Mm-hmm. But it is about relating to God through Jesus. You know, so it's, it's right. about growing in that relationship. And sometimes we have to surrender, and sometimes we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to do what God wants me to do? Um, now, I know there are certain things I think it's highly unlikely that God is going to ask me to do, like be a nuclear physicist, because I know when I look at my personality and my education <laughs> and my skills, I think, well, it would have to be an incredible miracle, and I can't see why <laughs> there's plenty of other people. But sometimes we can, you know, you hear people say things like, oh, I could never do that. And sometimes it almost means, it can mean, in some situations, I'm not, I'm not really willing to think I could do that. You know, I'm not open to doing that. Mm-hmm. So we were missionaries in Africa, and, um, you know, we get people saying, oh, I could never do that. You, you know, it's like when people say, oh, I admire your faith, almost, and then that almost like lets me off right. <laughs> having to have any faith. Cause right. <laughs> I admire your faith. I'm going to live vicariously <laughs> through yours, yeah. <laughs> I don't have that faith, so that's okay. It's just, I'm, we're all different. Um, whereas when, I, when they'd say to me, well, I admire your faith, going to Africa, I'd have to say, well, I don't think I've got, it's not like I've got some special faith that you haven't got. I, I have, I've sensed a call from God to do something. I've trusted him. I'm, I'm seeking to be obedient. That doesn't mean I'm not anxious about doing it. That doesn't mean I'm prepared. When we went out, um, I knew I would have to teach in Swahili. And at that point, I didn't know Swahili. So obviously, in the back of your mind, or you could say in the front of your mind, is, well, if I can't learn Swahili, I can't do anything. Right. What if I can't do it? I'd le- I'd, at that stage in my life, I'd been involved in reading various, uh, in learning various written languages, languages I would only, ancient languages I would only, or even modern languages that I was just reading. But I'd never become good at a, a spoken language. And I think I had something of a phobia of languages in uh, high, middle school and high school. And that was a fear for me. And I, I don't want to have anything to do with having to learn another language. I, I'm just too nervous about it. Um, but if God is calling you to go there, he will equip you to do it, and he did. Um, and sometimes we, it's a question of being obedient when we don't know. Um, and these can be in small things and big things. So, again, the other thing is you can hear something like that and say, well, God hasn't called me to be a missionary in Tanzania and to learn Swahili, so that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> right. Whereas it could apply to you in very, very small things that God is asking you to do, to speak to a particular neighbor or friend, you know, to do, send an email to someone, to do something you haven't done before or something that um, you know God is leading you to do. Um, so we need to be open to discerning what God is wanting you to do and seeking to obey um, whatever the cost. And sometimes it's, the funny thing is, sometimes God can give you a joy and a peace um, in something that you didn't want to do. Right. And for me, that's often when I f- most sense that God is in it. 
because I, if it's something I wanted to do anyway, it's going to be quite, quite difficult to discern, am I doing God's will or I just kind of, I just, I like doing this. But um, just another little trivial example, or not a trivial, but a small example would be um, immediately after college, I went, I had a gap year and I knew, um, I believed that God was calling me to be a Bible teacher long before that. And I thought it would be a good idea to have a year in Christian service, some sort of Christian ministry. I'd gone straight from high school to university. I'd led a quite a sheltered life. And I had all these things I, I thought that would be interesting to do, different contexts. And I got information. This is pre-internet. You know, I got all the sort of catalogs and prospectuses and different things from different organizations. And I looked at all these things that I uh, felt drawn to and didn't feel a peace about any of them. And then through a conversation, what you might say a coincidental, you know, one-off conversation with somebody challenged me to look at Africa and to look at a mission organization working in Africa. And I said to myself, or I realized later I'd said to myself without, without perhaps recognizing it, I will do anything apart from teach in a school, meaning teaching in a, a high school, a middle school with children, not, not adults. And there looked like there was this option that was going to be doing youth work. Funnily enough, in the Seychelles, that would have been nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> On a beautiful paradise island. But... Um, at the end of this conversation, it was clear that what that was not an option, and that what I would what I was going to need to do was to teach in a school. The one thing I'd say I'd sort of now realised, perhaps not being admitting it to myself, that I'm never going to do that, and realised this is what God is actually calling me to do. That one thing. And the funny thing is, I went back on the uh, the train. We have these things called trains in England. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> I've been on the metro in various places in uh, the States as well. So it was like the metro in, the, in, the, in London, not London, Kentucky, uh, London, England, uh, or London, Europe, as one person once said to me. Uh, <laughs> but um, And sensing, feeling, oh, this is the one thing I, didn't, I don't want to do, but feeling this inexplicable peace that this is what I'm going to do. Right. And I was thinking, you know, but I do want to say with this, God is not out to get us and make us things we don't want to do, do things we don't want to do so that we can be miserable. <laughs> that, that is not what it's all about. God is wanting us to surrender to his good purposes for us. And so I went thinking, I feel like I'm being, God's calling me to be a Bible teacher. I, I need to go somewhere where I'm going to do ministry, in quotes, uh, preaching and Bible teaching, not going into a school classroom and teaching English grammar and religious studies and things in that kind of setting with teenagers. When I got there with another fellow volunteer, I discovered that they only, for some strange reason, they called us you know, thousands of miles, but they didn't really have enough for each of us to do full-time, only about part-time. And then all these opportunities just started kind of organically opening up to do Bible teaching, to speak, in a Christian, in, uh, speak at youth services, Christian meeting, uh, like youth groups, uh, preaching in church, uh, running a a student Christian gathering for this boarding school, speaking at their meetings, discipling one-to-one, starting a Bible study with some of the leaders of this Christian group. So about half our time was filled with doing that, the precise giving me the sort of skills and experience that I'd wanted with something else. It wasn't in the job description. It wasn't part of what I was supposed to be doing, you could say in quotations. But when I was obedient, and I'm not not saying this to um, elevate myself, but I'm just as an example, when I in obedience, said, okay, I'll do, I'll do what you want me to do. It's like God added, you know, when he says, seek first the, the kingdom and its righteousness and all those other things will be added to you. When you seek God's will, he adds the things that you need, uh, not just the material possessions of Matthew 6, but the things he wants for you and those things right. are best. So we can trust God that 
when we surrender to his purposes, he will be faithful to empower us. Um, he will be faithful to work out his good purposes for us. And maybe I should just say that if you're struggling with this on your own, and it's, I know it's hard in our semi-lockdown days, but having other Christians around you who can pray with you through this, who you can be honest about, who can be either like mentors or um, fellow pilgrims on the path sort of thing, can be a real help so you can get perspective from other, other Christians. And you can do that through books as well, even you know, reading the testimonies of other Christians who've done that and have experienced God's goodness to them can be an encouragement when we feel we're trapped in that cycle. Absolutely. I, I think that God is most glorified in those moments when when we aren't doing what we would just normally would be, mm-hmm. when we're doing what we feel that we've yeah. never been called to do, or right. you know, and now we are being called to it, that, that that's when he really gets to shine. Yeah. It's the same reason I think he uses the underdogs so often in, yes. <laughs> in the Bible. You know, yeah. he, he loves just doing yeah. the impossible yeah. to make you trust him. Yeah. Because w- once he sees you through that, mm-hmm. you're closer to him after that, too. Yeah. You know Absolutely. that he saw you through that, and he'll see you through anything. Yeah. And so in our day-to-day, we can take that with us, especially in this culture, especially yeah. in this, this world, this crazy world we're living in. Yeah. Go out there and do what you're called to do. Yeah. The danger, I think, sometimes in our lives in, in the West is they can be so comfortable, yes. so easy for us to control. Yeah. You know, it's too hot, so I put on the air conditioning. It's too cold, so I put on the heating. What if you're in a culture, I've lived in parts of Africa, where They've got no control over most things right. in the way that we do. And you discover that they have a lot more faith than we do. They tend to pray more. They, they're much more uh, conscious of their sense of dependence on God. Whereas we tend to think, I can write a few emails, I can make a few phone calls, I can sort this problem out. <laughs> and it's very easy for us to control everything. And then we don't have this sense that I'm dependent on God for everything. Well, you know, and I think we do that with the church as well mm-hmm. as Christians. We've tiptoed into a very consumer-based mentality on the church. And as soon as things are looking tough, you know, in Africa, I'm sure there aren't as many Christian churches in certain parts of Africa as there are within, you know, six blocks here in in Greenwood, Indiana, you know. And and, and so we we have options here. If I don't like the way things are going at Church A— well, I'm not going to tough it out, and I'm not going right. to be God. I'm not going to be God's will in that situation. I'm mm-hmm. not going to carry that out. I'm going to go find the more comfortable yeah. situation, you know. <laughs> and I think if we would listen to those discomforts and really continually pray as mm-hmm. we're commanded to, yeah. we would see that we are capable of acting as God's representatives mm-hmm. in many more situations than we actually do. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right. Well. Philip, this was good stuff. I really enjoyed listening to that and talking with you. And uh, thank you for coming on. I hope that uh, that this will be a blessing to somebody. I hope so too. Well, thank you, Zach, for having me. No problem, <laughs> uh, guys. Take this information, think it through, read your Bibles, talk to God about it, um, see how this applies to you. Really, just chew on this and and try and work this information out in your lives. Uh, we love you. We're thinking about you. And uh, yeah, stay salty. What happens when a writer and former history teacher goes toe-to-toe with his best friend, a nationally touring stand-up comedian? Total carnage, that's what. Two men enter, and two men leave because... 
That's how it works. <laughs> Actually, you get hilarious, real, and insightful conversations about life, history, culture, faith, and everything in between. Join me, comedian Johnny W., and my pal, author, and speaker John Driver for Talk About That at lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.